Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the Army War College. Thanks for joining us for today's program, and I am absolutely delighted today to be joined not just by a fabulous author, but by one of my really good friends, uh, Dr. Alexandra Ritchie, uh, probably best known for her two books, Faust Metropolis, A History of Berlin, and Warsaw 1944, Hitler, Himmler, and the Warsaw Rising. Uh, We're here in New Orleans at the end of this World War II conference, sitting in the new World War II hotel. Can't think of a better place to sit down with, with a brilliant person like Alex. So Alex, welcome. Thank you very much. It's fantastic in here. So I want to start just by, uh, a, you know, we, we've known each other a, a while. Uh, I know you were born in Canada. I was, Victoria. Edu- educated in England. In Canada and England. In both. Canada and England, mm-hmm. and with an original emphasis in the history of Germany. Yeah. And you've now, now you live in Warsaw. Yes. So track us through that as an intellectual journey. Were, were you interested in German history from the beginning? Where did the interest in Poland come from? Always interested in in. German, but I would say European cultural history. I, I I grew up in a family that was very, you know, into opera and things like that, which on the west coast of Canada was pretty unusual. I studied Johann Sebastian Bach when I was younger and uh, became something of a Bach scholar, although I was never good enough to be a musician. I realized this fairly early on, but I was always interested in the history of the musicians like Beethoven, Bach, and how they related to you know, revolutions and what was happening in, in their societies. And, and Bach just sort of grabbed me. So one one fine day, one of my old music teachers from the Banff School of Fine Arts in Canada said to me, um, there's this sort of exchange thing going on uh, with East Germany, and um, you, Westerners who, who very rarely got the chance to go into East Germany in the 80s because it was under the communists uh, behind the Berlin Wall, uh, said, you know, this is a chance to go and see where Bach lived and worked as a young man and a musician and a composer, and would you like to go? And I leapt on the chance and and that was really what started my passion interest and and uh, in not so much even Germany at that point I was just fascinated by the fact that you had Germany this country that was divided down the middle and there was one half that was communist one half that was capitalist and and yet it had all come from the same place and then Berlin was even more that was Mm -hmm. like two halves of the same brain divided down the middle and uh, and I was fascinated by how on earth do you manipulate a society to think differently about its past its history uh, when it's actually come from the same exactly the same city as it were so this has really sort of sparked my interest and I, I kind of I, I went to East Germany and I learned German badly at first and and then um, eventually ended up going to Oxford writing my doctorate about the manipulation of history in, in East and West Germany uh, a particular emphasis on World War II so that's kind of how that that ball got rolling so was it while you were in Germany that you thought to yourself, hey, I, there's some things I might, I might actually want to write about this, or did that come later? Yeah, no, I, I already knew that, that I wanted to, I've always wanted to be a writer, and one of the reasons I, I was inspired to do so was that our, our next-door neighbor in this beautiful part of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, was a, an explorer of all things, and he um, had a very interesting history, because he was a First World War soldier, and um, had gone back to Cambridge, uh, read history, and then um, 
his father got him a job at the Bank of England, as one did. And he was walking down Piccadilly one day. He was bored out of his mind. And he followed a guy who went into one of the gentlemen's outfitters on Piccadilly where they sold pith helmets and the like. And, he, and the first guy was going to Canada. And he said, I'm going to Canada too. So he, so he upped and, and just got, got some cash from dad and went off to Canada. And, uh, and started exploring uh, northern British Columbia, the Rocky Mountains and that area, and wrote books about it. And so I, as a little kid, would go up to his house, you know, they'd have tea, he and Marigold, Raymond and Marigold, um, and, uh, and he would talk about being a writer and, and an explorer in those early, early days up in the north, where he was the first guy to go up the Nahanni River, for example, uh, uh, it was a big river up in BC and things like this. And so I just thought this lifestyle was fabulous. He sat in this beautiful kind of cabin, uh, reading these great books and then writing books and, and having all his friends over and I thought yeah this is this is what I want to do uh, so I always had this this desire to be in the creative world either writing music whatever combination and, and that was really another thing in the back of my mind that that got me interested in writing so when I went to East Berlin and I saw this amazing material and I knew I was going to stop any ideas of uh, ambition to become a professional musician and I'd known that for many many years anyway I thought yeah this is a good topic to write about so when you got to Oxford, you knew writing and history was what the thing. you were going to do. Absolutely, yeah. I, I already knew that, that history, and, and I didn't realize at that point that, that I was going to want to write books the same way. I thought I'd just be an academic historian, and, and you know maybe some terribly academic books would come out of it at some point. But this was something that, yeah, that, that, that evolved a little bit as I learned how to write better and, and uh, got subjects that I thought were really interesting. Yeah, I think that happens to a lot. I mean, I really thought I would write one book, and then you sort of get to the sense that you might be okay at doing this. But yeah. it is an evolutionary process. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and it just comes out of, out of practice and out of inspiration and all sorts of other things. You don't really know where it comes from sometimes. Yeah. It's just a kind of impulse to say, yeah, I really want to do this. And that's what I did. So that explains that why your first book uh, was about Berlin, mm -hmm. um, Faust Metropolis. But it is a big book that starts way back in the history of Berlin and comes very much up to the present time as you were writing. Mm -hmm. So what, what was inspiring your choice to say, I don't want to write just about divided Berlin or Cold War Berlin. I want to get a sense of this entire sweep of this city. Well, it actually wasn't my choice. I was, I had, just after I graduated, the Berlin Wall came down and I was hired by a company called the Boston Consulting Group to go and become a consultant in what was East Germany because I was one of the old, only Westerners who'd lived there. And then I went on into Ukraine and to Belarus and to, uh, into Russia working for them. And I was happily working away based in London when I got a call from HarperCollins, uh, Mike Fishwick from HarperCollins. And he said, um, I've just been talking to Tim Gartnash, who was a friend of mine at Oxford, who was quite well known for writing about solidarity and the changes in post-communist era and everything. And he said that uh, Tim, I'd asked Tim to write a book about Berlin, but he said, I don't have time, but I know somebody who might want to do it. Hmm. And it was just at the time when I was had to make the choice as to whether or not I wanted to go back into academia or um, or carry on in the sort of business consulting world. And I love both, but um, for all sorts of personal reasons, it was a good time to switch back to academia. So I was hired by Wolfson College at Oxford, hired by HarperCollins at, to, and under contract to write exactly the book, The Whole History of Berlin. So in a way, I didn't have a choice. Had, I been, had it been up to me, I probably would have done more, you know, Second World, First mm -hmm. World War, Second World War history, but they wanted the whole thing, so that's what that's what came out of it. So this is one of those rare books. I mean, it, it's rare that a publisher comes to an author with a project. It's also rare that a publisher comes to an author that isn't yet 
an established best-selling prize-winning author which you are now but you weren't you weren't no then. it wasn't unknown it was just a recommendation from so did a you feel completely overwhelmed by this like how do I write the whole history of a city that I've lived in but I wasn't born in wasn't raised in speak the language but don't have a mastery of it or how did you what was your first you reaction know, to my, all that? my first reaction was was great I'll quit my job and go do this because it'll take me a year and I'll be done <laughs> it was so stupid and how long did it take you? <laughs> like I don't know 10 years I mean it was I mean, there was no Google in those days so you know all the research and I never ever have hired researchers or used researchers I've learned the languages and done the work myself which is probably actually really naive and stupid but that's what I've done so I just really feel I then have a mastery of the subject so I very naively said okay yeah no problem I'll get this done <laughs> you know get back to my teaching uh, and it took many years of research and, and hard work to, to, to get it done. And, and of course, it, it's a very big subject. So of course, it got bigger and bigger. But I really enjoyed it. I didn't feel daunted at all. That was that was not a feeling I had at all. In fact, in fact, quite the opposite. I was totally arrogant and thought, I'll just whip this out. No problem. I know everything about Berlin. No problem at all. And of course, the reality when you're halfway through or even halfway through the first chapter hits you and you go yeah. got a mountain to climb here it's quite a lot to do so that the reality did sort of hit but I was very lucky because I was I loved being at Wolfson um at Wolf, Wolfson College Oxford it's a wonderful home and um very encouraging a very great place to write so how did you take a big subject like that um several centuries of the history of a city how did you intellectually start to break it down to something you could you could manage the thing that interested me about Berlin and about German history, and after all, by this point, I'd lived there for quite a long time and had a lot of interaction with the place. And I, the big question that I was asking myself, which many, many people have asked themselves about Germany, is how could this place full of Bachs and Beethovens turn into this disgusting and despicable regime in the, you know, 1933 to 45? And what was it about the German people, the nation, the psyche, whatever else that, that allowed this to happen in a way. And I, was, I became fascinated with uh, the whole subject, but I thought one, one good thing about being forced to write about Berlin and not about the history of Germany was that Berlin could always be a focal point. And that was very important to kind of keep tying it in. Now, I know the book is a very large thing that could kill a man at 100 paces if you threw it at him, but the, the, the intellectual side that helped me a lot was having this sort of control on, on the history of Germany. And in fact, I used Berlin as a conduit to describe the history of Germany, but through the lens of Berlin. That was one thing. But the real theme that, that absolutely fascinated me was... How was it, if you look at this long, long history, particularly starting with the Prussian kings, um, that the Berliners, the Germans, the Prussians seem to be able to latch on to whichever system it is and become the best at that system and completely convinced that this is the correct thing mm -hmm. to do, whether it's the uh, soldier king and, and uh, you know, 60% of the revenue of the government's going into the army. And as Merbeau quips, it's a, a not a state with an army, it's an army with a state um, into you know, World War One, the most imperial power with, you know, people jumping up and down when war is declared and it's super patriotic and into Weimar is the most, you know, louche capital city with Marlene Dietrich and, and Otto Dix and all these people running around and, and cabaret, etc. And then World War Two comes along and they become the best Nazis. And then after the war was fascinating because you've got, this is what started the whole interest. You've got a, a country divided down the middle, a city divided down the middle, and one side's becoming the best little communists you can possibly find, and the other side's becoming the most successful capitalists you can possibly find. What is it about Berlin that causes this, um, this sort of incredible uh, determination to adhere to the 
current ideology and uh, with an intolerance that, that affects those who don't conform. Yeah. And this was the basis of the, the book. And so if you go through any of those eras that I mentioned, uh, and, and even earlier, there, there's this tendency. Now, one can take it too far. One can be sort of bludgeon this with a, with a sledgehammer. But, but actually, there is a tendency throughout its history. And, and probably Berlin um, is one of those cities. It's hard to think of another one that's, that's lurched from one system, one extreme, one ideology to another with such conviction. Yeah, you could even argue today, I mean, the, 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 at least my experience, that the, the most ardent transatlanticist multi multilateral people are berliners yes. that this yeah so that yeah. that that fits with the argument of the book yeah and and even when i was living there it was the sort of beginning of the greens environmentalists and so on but i remember being being berated because i had bought the wrong kind of coffee it wasn't uh, i just needed a cup of coffee and was just getting one off the street somewhere and I, and it turned out it hadn't been uh, you know, when this was just very new, it hadn't been uh, sustainable growth coffee or whatever it was. And, and these people that I was I was interviewing a kind of in a kind of makeshift commune type place just screamed at me. How could you not? You know, how could you buy this stuff? And I was like, this sounds terribly familiar. <laughs> no, it's not about coffee. But, you know, and, and of course, I understood their motivation and they were being they were trying to be, you know, responsible and, and, and environmentally friendly and everything else but I just thought the sort of in, in a way intolerance of how it was how it was projected was part of its history this tradition so. so I'm curious too about the reaction of the book inside Berlin and inside Germany because I've written on Paris and I get a lot of response from Parisians mm-hmm. um, not negative but sort of you know why are you an American doing this and I've actually had editors say to me who were interested in translations of the book into French I've actually had them say to me um, we're not interested in an American telling us this story we, we, we just don't want to hear it. Mm. What was the reaction in Berlin to a Canadian, British-educated person writing I, I, about Berlin? I don't really remember ever coming across that, actually. I, 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 and maybe it was out there, but it wasn't something that I, that I came across. What I, what I did find and still find is when I go through Berlin now, it's exactly the, because it's now become such a tourist center mm-hmm. that I find lots of guides come up to me and say, your book was a Bible, you know, thank you for writing it, you know, uh, but these are, are, are either German guides or also foreign guides who are bringing foreigners through Berlin. But I never heard any, any either particularly positive or particularly negative um, feedback about the book, but it wasn't, the, the rights were bought in, in Germany twice, but they weren't, the book was never published. And I was just told, well, it's just too long, which is fair enough because it's huge. So I, I, I completely bowed to that. I, I just let it go. So before we move off of this book to uh, to uh, your your second book, um, let can we talk for a second about the the how you write a book that's that big? So I usually try not to write books that are that big. I think it's a function of my impatient personality. I don't want to be with the subject that long. Uh, but how did you conceive of how you were going to get your arms around such a big topic, not just thematically, but the, the size of the book, were you thinking about that as you were writing? No, I never expected it to be so huge, actually. I never wanted it to be. But and it the just, publisher it didn't just, care? You come oh, no, back and he, say, he, I've he, got he, another 20,000 words I want to do or 50,000 words? He was great. He was just like, do whatever. It's great stuff. Just carry on. So that was that was my that was my mm-hmm. direction. Uh, and so in that, in that sense, I actually went to him and said, you know, don't you want to cut some of this? This is, you know, do we cut the early history? And he said, no, this is great. Just carry on. So that was my, <laughs> that was my limitation. So that, that's really why I think if I, I think nowadays it would have been much more difficult to have something so big and cumbersome. And, and I think, um, yeah, uh, it may, may have been very different now, but this was a long time ago. Did so. you write it chronologically or did you go to chapters you sort of felt you no, knew better? No, I wrote it, I wrote it chron- chronologically. You did. And, you started, and, you started yeah, I started, at the start and I started day one. And I also, um, I think that 
if it sounds really, really, I, I don't need to sound pretentious, but I think that long, long, long musical training and studying things like the structure of symphony or uh, symphonies mm-hmm. and so on, I think it, it trains your brain to think in a certain sort of structure. So you're not frightened by the fact that there's going to be you know, beginning, middle, end, even if it's enormous. Uh, it, it's a sort of way of thinking, I think, that, uh, uh, that allows you to get a skeletal structure. And so I, I sort of thanked uh, all my musical theory and harmony teachers <laughs> much later on, saying, well, actually, this, this probably was very, very good mm-hmm. training, even though it's nothing to do with music, but it's, it, it gives your brain a certain way of structuring material, um, which might have been overwhelming otherwise. That's really interesting. And then you, this, your second book um, is also a very big book, uh, dealing with a very big and important theme, the Warsaw Rising, but it is more compressed in time and space. So yes. You're dealing with one city over a period of a couple of weeks. Of course, there's background material and things that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that intellectual challenge of going from however many hundred years of Berlin history to trying to focus on the events of a very short span of time? And the two books are of approximately the same length. It was exactly the same same problem is an intellectual challenge and it, just in microcosm um, precisely because Berlin you've got you know prehistory through middle ages to Weimar to you know 1970s and beyond uh, in the Warsaw uprising you have the city was uh, of course taken by by the Poles in the, in the first of August a large part of the city and then taken piece by piece by the Germans so I had to go in a certain order and in fact about halfway through the book I was like well you know, this is just sort of, it's, it's, it's the same, but I have to keep writing because this is history and this is how it happened. I already felt by the first half of the book that I'd already pretty well covered all the things that I, in a sense, wanted to say, but in the interest of it being historically accurate and an absolute sort of mirror as to the events that happened in the city, I had to keep going and finish up. Um, and, and the interesting thing was that each district of the city was taken in a completely different way. So it was almost like you move from Weimar into World War II into, you know, it, it, it was as structured as that. So in a way, both books, my structure was in a way given to me already. And so I had to fill in the blanks in the Warsaw book as well. And, you know, yes, the, the focus is, is quite different, um, but, the, but the structure was very similar, intellectually, I mean. And were you... Were you looking for a grand narrative were you looking for one big question it's kind of a trick question I mean I've read the book I think I know what you're going to say but just to you know for, for the purpose what of the podcast say? well I want to see if I'm wrong okay. go ahead um, no the, the big question in this book was why when the war was almost lost in 19, August 1944 um, did the Germans feel the need to come back uh, murder most of the inhabitants or imprison them or send them to camps and totally and utterly destroy the city I mean what was the point point? and so so many books about the Warsaw Uprising and about uh, Poland during World War II have to do with the Soviets. Why mm-hmm. did the Soviets not come to our aid? Why did the Soviets take us over afterwards and, and impose this communist system? Uh, my focus was very much more on what the Germans had done, and this was a, a logical conclusion because, of course, I read German. I had studied a lot about German World War II history by this point and very interested in the, in the, uh, the crimes that were committed in, the, in Central and Eastern Europe uh, during World War II. And so it was a sort of a natural extension of that. Why did the Germans come back and do this? What was their motivation? And then, of course, one looks at the details the people involved and the the orders that were given and and so on so so that was in a way uh, the big overarching question and of course the issue did you get it right (laughs) i'm close i think um i was also thinking more that warsaw gets a treatment that no other city 
Other cities are certainly destroyed. Other cities certainly mm -hmm. go through horrible, horrible. But no other city is, as you said, sort of deliberately block by block for what seems to be no strategic operational, no reason to None. do it. None. And None. that's an intellectual problem, of course. And now you live in Warsaw and were yes. living in Warsaw, I assume, when you were when you were working on the book. Or, yes. or you yeah. know, so yeah. to, and, and the city is, for those who haven't been there, if you can see it with Alex, I highly recommend it. But you, you can <laughs> always you can, welcome. <laughs> you, you can see where there there was an old city and now there is a new city. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not like you are walking through London where you can say, well, that building looks like something built in the late '40s. I mean, the entire yeah. city has to be reconstructed. Yes. So yeah. I, again, that question of 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 the very city in which you are living you're trying to understand what it is that you're walking around. Mm. And I was lucky because I first went to Warsaw in 1986, so th this was still under the communists, and, and very little had been done to renovate the city except for the big uh, Soviet set pieces like the Palace of Culture and some of the big boulevards that Stalin remodeled, and he did the same in East Berlin and other places too. Uh, the Palace of Culture is modeled on the Seven Sisters in Moscow. I mean, it's so very much a kind of you know, Soviet control, here we are. But most of the rest of the outskirts of the city had, had basically been uh, ignored uh, or very ugly sort of Brezhnevian prefab concrete blocks had been hastily put up so people had a place to live because as you said the city was basically flattened otherwise and so um, so there were lots and lots of kind of uh, places in the city that where the buildings were half destroyed or you know you could see the remnants of the war still that's pretty well all gone now because Warsaw's grown so quickly since the collapse of communism that that almost all those traces have, have, have disappeared mm -hmm. you see it when you go outside of Warsaw a little bit but basically the the city itself is now like a phoenix rising from the ashes kind of thing and 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 you see this very interesting intermingling with Prague on the East Bank, which has still old buildings, old factories, and so on. It was always a working-class district uh, with the tenements that look, it could have been old Berlin, it could have been old Petersburg. Um, and then on the western side, you've got you know, the, the, what was the ghetto, just a whole sea of these Brezhnevian prefab blocks, the center with these big Stalinist um, set pieces, and then all dotted in throughout there now, these new modern office buildings and apartment buildings that have come up since 1989. So it's a fascinating patchwork quilt of architectural history and therefore the layers that you can sort of unfold through architecture. It's, it's, it's really amazing, actually. So let me ask you the same question I asked about Berlin. Has the, your book been received in Warsaw? Does it get much attention? Has it been translated into Polish? It's translated into Polish. In fact, became a number one best-selling book in Warsaw, in, in Poland. Um, so the reception when it was, was obviously positive. It was positive. really, really good. And, and yeah. even for a non-fiction book, it was the best-selling the best -selling book for a short time in, in Poland, so, which is amazing. The Warsaw Uprising has become almost kind of cultish. It's so mm -hmm. it's such a big topic now and, and uh, has become a kind of uh, very controversial and very interesting um, and uh, but anyway, they, the uh, people liked the book, and I think one of the reasons was first of all, there was an awful lot of original research interviews and talking to the people themselves and the voices, talking about their interaction, particularly with the Germans. I didn't dwell on this endlessly repeated topic of why did the Soviets stay on the Eastern Bank and mention it, but I wanted to put the Warsaw Uprising and the and the decision to start the uprising in the context of the Second World War as it was seen primarily from the German perspective, Bagration, them being pushed backwards, the attempted assassination on Hitler, uh, Walter Model's counteroffensive, which takes place just at Yaktore on, on the outskirts of Warsaw. Uh, these things fascinated me. And so, you know, with, with all this happening, why did the Germans do what they did and, uh, and, and, and come back, as you say, and lash out against the people? And, and I think that it, it, it was a refreshing and different perspective for right. many Poles. 
you you had what what the Army War College calls you had the more beautiful question in mind. You had the thing that was kind of guiding the research and guiding the writing. And yes, I, to me, that's the absolute key. When I'm having writer's block, it's normally because I don't know what that question yeah. of that particular part of a book yeah. is going to be yeah you've got to have that that in your mind that sort of guides you through and it also i, I say this ironically because it, it it looks hilarious of at least thousands of pages but it, it also uh, it gives you the guidance as to what not to write about mm -hmm. if you've got mm -hmm. that main question you said i could have done all sorts of things about the soviets or all sorts of things about you know other cities being treated this way no you have to stick with the main theme otherwise you can get lost and if you start to get lost then you get panicky and if you get panicky you, you give up or you you know, do another project or something, and that's always a, a problem. So for writers, I think, uh, especially writers of history, if you've got that big concept in your mind, then you can, you can carry it through to the end. And the other thing that you have that comes through in your books, but certainly comes through when I'm walking with you in Poland, is the, the, the passion you have for explaining this to people who may not have thought very much about Poland, which mm -hmm. I confess I was, I was one until mm -hmm. I came to Warsaw. Um, yeah. So... That that comes through quite clearly in the way that you're you're it's I don't want to say it's missionary like but it's certainly it's certainly proselytizing in the way that you want people to understand not just contemporary Poland but what Poland means in the grand sweep mm -hmm. of not just one world war but but two yeah um, and the Russo-Polish war that takes place so yeah. I, as as I'm watching the sand begin to come out of the hourglass <laughs> uh, when you and I were in Poland we were talking about. A project you're interested in in the German mindset at the end of World War One and how this might explain Germany's road to the Second World War. So I wonder if you might talk just a little bit about what that is and kind of where your thinking is. Yeah, that's the next sort of big book. Although I'll try and keep it a little smaller this time. But the, again, the idea is to um, look at the legacy of World War One and the fact that the borders on between uh, Poland and the East were unfinished, so that or, or undecided, so that uh, it was an open question. Hence, the 1920s war. I'm fascinated by the Germans who. In, at the end of World War One, after Brest-Litovsk, had almost thought of themselves as settlers in these new lands and, and, and began to even till the soil and bring in the harvest kind of thing. And they were in shock when they were told that they were actually having to go back to Berlin or Dusseldorf or wherever they were from because they had now quite a nice idea that this would be nice Lebensraum sort of place. And, and I'm looking very much at how those guys, and particularly, in, in, for example, people like Rosenberg and some of the other SS ideolo ideologists uh, who were on the Eastern Front in that context, come back and... and uh, propagate the stab and the back myth, the idea you need Lebensraum and so on, and how they try and intellectualize it, how they try and put it into the Nazi ideology, which of course it becomes. It becomes mm -hmm. such an important, fundamental part of what Hitler is trying to do, what Himmler is trying to do later on in uh, the Second World War. And the idea that, that permeates the, the, the Nazi mind is that we deserve, have the right to uh, and have already been in these lands, and we're going to make them better, we're going to cleanse them of these horrible Jews and horrible Slavs, um, and Germanize them and make them into this sort of wonderful paradise. But of course, a paradise in the Nazi eyes is a paradise that can't have Jews in it, and mm -hmm. it can have only a few Slavs to take out the washing and, you know, feed the animals. That's kind of their thought. So among the many things I love about this project, A, I think you're dead right, that, that in order to understand this, we have to think about those Germans who believe, hey, we did win in the East. The defeat was somewhere else. It wasn't where we were standing. Yeah. And of course, as you and I have talked uh, in Warsaw uh, of, of being able to link the events of 1914 through to 1945 and beyond, that this really is kind of one arc of history. Yes. And that the, the Second World War is fought by men who have vivid, clear memories, recollections, constructions, whatever one might want to call them, about what had happened 
during the first. Yes, and absolutely. And the thing is, it's not just true of Poland, but you look at the, that whole region. As I said, the border, of the, the border of Poland, you know, in the West, you've mm-hmm. got the Treaty of Versailles. Thank you, signed, sealed, and delivered. These are the borders. This is what's going to happen. Uh, and everybody kind of goes home. The Germans are grumpy. Everybody else is, you know, economically not doing well. But okay, we've got our borders. That's not true of Central Europe. You've got all the problems with the Soviets, yeah. with the Baltic states, yeah. with uh, Belarus and Ukraine, the conflicts, uh, issues between Poland, Czechoslovakia, all these all these things are going on and they're not resolved. And, and uh, the Second World War and Hitler's war is in a way temporarily resolved some of these things. But but the mindset and the in, and the and the ideological conflicts that are there underlying these uh, bigger conflicts under Nazism um, are, are are simmering away the whole time, and I and I want to try and tease those out and explore them. Of course, Poland is my focus, but uh, but overarching that is the is the conflict between the Soviet Union and and Nazi Germany. And again, what I love about that is it it, it gets us beyond just thinking of 1939-45 as a kind of parenthesis and sets it in a much wider. Yeah. Much wider angle. Absolutely. So we're yes. almost out of time. So I want to ask you: You're going to get back on the plane uh, tomorrow or the day after, and go back to Europe. What are you reading? What will you read on that flight? What's on your bedstand? What are you? What are you well, reading? Well, right now, I mean, it's it's uh, it, it's slightly unfair because I'm reading only stuff <laughs> to the research materials for my for my books. But but uh, when I want to give up on that stuff, actually, um, it's it's related. Of course, I'm I'm right now have a project of going through. Uh, the especially the old Russian uh, Tolstoy Dostoevsky Russian novels was getting me back in the in that feeling of of the Russian mindset. This was very very important to understand the the ideology, the philosophy, the the uh, cultural touchstones. Even though the revolution swept a lot of those things away, a lot of them are preserved. So I'm I'm going into that Russian mindset at the moment. Uh, so that so. I'm afraid it's the idiot and and uh, and war and peace. It sounds pr- terribly pretentious, but that's kind of the that's kind of the idea right now. Yeah, well, sure. Well, that's that's where your mind is. That's where your your <laughs> reading should be. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Alex, I, I can't thank you enough. Um, I I learned so much from you uh, being in Warsaw. I learned so much from you about Poland and about Eastern Europe, and I'm just delighted we had this chance to talk. Brilliant. Thank you so much for having See me. See you in Warsaw. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear even more great content, subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. Dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.